The reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in those ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God always blesses his own word. Well, good evening. Uh, good morning. Good morning. I had my dressing gown on, didn't I? So, yeah, I meant good morning. Good morning, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. It is good to be here together once again at our service of worship. Let's just begin with a brief prayer. May we hear your word, O Lord our God. May it enter deeply into us, in each one of us, and produce in us faith, hope, and love to your glory. Amen. Well, what we have before us um, this morning in our Bible portion that's been read to us just then is what may be called application. Up to the end of chapter 2 in this short letter of Colossians, um, Paul has been, uh, which we've covered in our previous four sermons to date, halfway through the book, we have heard some wonderful theological teaching from the Apostle Paul. He's helped us in our thinking about Jesus in particular. And he puts before us now, from chapter 3 onwards, 
the implications for our lives and relationships, what the previous teaching and our receiving of it means for how we live day by day. Now this is typical of the letters of Paul and of others in our Bibles. Um, just by the way, if you have your Bibles with you, you might like to turn to Colossians chapter 3 because I'll be referring in detail to this particular chapter. And if you have it, there are pew Bibles available. There's some on the uh, table at the rear. And in our pew Bibles, it's, it be, the reading is from page 1184. Okay, so as I was saying, this is typical of uh, Paul's letters and those of others in the New Testament as well. There's firstly a section of doctrine or teaching and then that's followed by the practical outworking of that doctrine. The theory is followed by the practice. Now my Bible, which is a New International Version Study Bible, gives a title to this morning's portion. It says, Rules for Holy Living. Which doesn't sound very exciting, does it? But let's have a good look at it. It's actually significant how Paul couches these instructions. They don't just come out of nowhere. We recall too that in the previous chapters there has been some instruction from Paul, so the division is not exactly uh, totally clear-cut. This division between theory and practice uh, can be seen uh, um, is, doesn't just begin at chapter 3. So let's just refer back to chapter 2 and verse 6. Paul writes there in the midst of his theological argument, he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith in which you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So there are some instructions. You might say, well, they're very general in nature compared to the specific things he's going to get into in chapter 3, but they are instructions nonetheless uh, to be overflowing with thankfulness and to be strengthened in faith and, you know, hanging on to, to Christ. Um, and then later on in chapter 2, at verse 16, we read this, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. And again in verse 20 and 21, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So the instructions in those verses, um, and again they're general, but they seem to be negative in character. Don't, submit, don't live this way, don't submit to those uh, unnecessary rules, um, but they are instructions uh, nonetheless. Those things would be detrimental to faith. But now we've reached chapter 3, and that's where we're going today. Paul here concentrates on how we, as God's holy people, should live. Though there's plenty of instruction to engage us, before we get into it, we need to note the setting of these rules because it's very important. Let's just read verses 1 to 3 again. Since then, he says, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
So there's not just a list of rules, one after the other, or even an explanation as to why this particular rule is good and why that rule is given. It's got a wonderful context that Paul has spelt out for us. Christ, who died for us, he's been raised from the dead. And you and I have been raised with him. Further, in our identification with Christ, we died in this life, in this world, so to speak. That death, that death comes before being raised. We died with Christ and then we've been raised with him. We were once alive in this world, to a degree, to, in a fashion, but we died and were buried, and now we've been raised. Our life now, the centre of our being, is no longer here on earth. It's in heaven. We've not only been raised, we've actually ascended with Christ to be with God in heaven, as it were. Isn't that a rather amazing way to put all this? It's far more than just rules, don't do this, and do that, you know. It's putting in a, in a context these rules for holy living. And this is the spiritual reality for us, for every Christian. Another thing that's very important for us to appreciate from the start, Paul doesn't say anywhere in this letter or in other places where he gives practical instruction. He doesn't say something like this. He doesn't say, keep this rule, keep those rules, uh, and then you'll be accepted by God. And if you don't follow the rules I'm giving you, well, God will judge you and he'll reject you and you'll be out. No, it's never put like that, is it? Instead, it's put this way. You've been made right with God, you are holy now, so now live according to that. That's, that's exactly how Paul puts it here. Live now to match who you actually are. One commentator calls this a paradox and puts it this way. Become by God's grace what you already are. That is a paradox, isn't it? Become what you already are. Of course, it pleases and honours God when we hear him and obey him, live in obedience to him. Conversely, it displeases him and dishonours him uh, when we disobey him. But we are his children, his family, nonetheless. Now, one more thing from the outset that we get in those first verses. We see how both our hearts and our minds are engaged in all this. Paul writes, first of all, set your hearts on things above. That's to do with your emotions and your affections. That's the first thing. It's got to deal with your emotions and affections. They're linked to what's above. And then secondly, he says, straight after that, he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Well, our minds... That's where our reasoning takes place, our, our, um, our logic, all, all those kind of things, and our, our intellect. So that's engaged equally. It's not one or the other. It's not just the heart and it's not just the mind. It's both together um, that, we've, that needs to be affected and moved by God about these things. It's our whole being that God is interested in. 
Okay, now we'll get into it. From verses 5 to 11, um, their instructions, um, and they and in verses 12 uh, down to 17, their instructions as well. And they both begin with a therefore. It's linked to those things. Paul's laid the foundation, and therefore we've got to consider these things. Now the first section is negative in time, and the second section is positive. He says in, uh, and that, that goes back further into his letter. Back in verse 20 of the previous chapter, he says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of spiritual forces of this world, he goes on about certain neg- in a negative way. Don't submit to this. Don't, don't follow that. And so that's negative. And then he's positive uh, in the first part of chapter 3. Then negative again and then positive. So he's going from one group of instructions uh, to the other. Um, and, um, and, it, and it all is linked together. Now look, Paul may surprise us with the tone of his language, with the strength of his language. Did you get that in verse 5? This is when he's getting into the specifics. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He's not saying, hey, look, it would be a good idea if you didn't do such and such um, or something like that or um, you've got to weigh this up and try and do this. No, he's, he's not, um, not mildly put like that. It's put to death these things. So that's pretty severe, isn't it? And there's no dilly-dallying. There's no hesitation. He wants you to be right in this. Well, what things? Let's have a little look. Verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 5. The very first thing mentioned here, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. That's the second part of verse 5 of chapter 3. Now, the first four vices that are listed there are sexual in nature. The very first word translated here, sexual immorality, is a broad term, and um, it is the broadest term that he puts out of those four. The actual Greek word gives us an idea. It's porneian, from which we get the English word pornography. But it covers vastly more than just that. It kind of covers every sexual deviance that, that you could think, that you could imagine. The following three are perhaps subsets of that first one. What does he say? He says, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Then the fifth term, greed, again, seems to be very general. It is translated in other versions, covetousness, about coveting things, wanting other things. Again, it's a very broad idea, and it encompasses those previous four and more. And Paul says that that is equivalent to idolatry. Idolatry is wanting anything else other than God, about seeking anything apart from God, putting all these other things in God's place, whether it's uh, sexual things or whether it's to do with a person's status or material wealth or whatever, anything. Now, the pagan world of 20 centuries ago was full of sexual corruption. Sadly, our 21st century Western societies are rapidly going that same path, more than ever. Then Paul gives a warning. Uh, He says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, the wrath of God is an unpopular subject, isn't it? Even among Christians, it would seem. 
But it's the inevitable outcome, Paul says, for a sinful world, a world and a way of life of which, out of which we've been called and rescued. Because he goes on, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. The world's way of life is ours no longer. It, did, it included all such things and those vices, but it's our way no longer. We've, we've, been, we've been transferred out of that into something wonderful and new and fresh. Now, Paul continues in this section in negative vein. Again, his language is strong and uncompromising, and here, and next he uses a different figure of speech. Uh, from verse 8, he says, Now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. The list he gives here in the following words that I've referred to in our children's talk is not necessarily comprehensive. It's not necessarily everything. He says, all such things as these. He lists the, the things that come to his mind, first of all. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. It's pretty clear what Paul is targeting here. They are vices of the affections of the mind and word, um, aren't they? In the original Greek, his instruction, rid yourselves of, literally means taking off garments. It's as though there are garments that are clinging to us and we take these garments off and get, and get rid of them. Then verse 10 follows. Uh, and you have put on the new self. There again is that picture of putting on a garment. It's the new self which God gives us and, we, and he helps us to put that on in Christ. We've got to rid ourselves of one lot and put on the new self. Now, I actually wonder whether there's an, in, an intentional difference here in Paul. First of all, that he listed those uh, sexual vices first and then he covers all other things or, um, and things of that nature. There's, there's, they're, they're covered in two ways. And the first picture is of putting to death and the second picture is of taking a garment off and putting another garment on. I really wonder whether there's an intentional difference there that he is highlighting uh, the, the terrible seriousness of uh, sexual vices. Anyway, that's just a thought. Now we've dealt with the negative section. Now let's move on to the positive from verse 10. He says, you've put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. Now here we get a picture, we've put it on, but we're being continually renewed. So we have a sense there that it's not a once for all thing. We do put it on once, but it's being renewed. That's God's work in us over and over again, day by day, week by week, um, to, make us, to make us conform to the image of his son, the son of his love. Um, you and I are new creatures, and it is God's work, but we're involved in this. And God's in continuing action. Um, the other way, there are other ways to describe this process, but in this context it's in knowledge. That is, knowledge properly understood. It says, what does it say there? We're being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, of, of our God. We're being steadily transformed into the image of the Son of God, all of us, regardless of our background, our ethnicity, our level of education, or our social status. We're all being transformed. Christ is all and in all, as he says. 
Now, does that describe us? Well, yes, it does, by God's grace. Isn't that amazing? How wonderful that you and I are, as Paul writes here, what does he, what does he call us? He says, um, you and I are God's chosen people. You've been chosen by God, each one individually. Then he says, you're holy, you're separate, you're cleansed, you're, 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 you're like God. And the third thing he uses to describe us is dearly loved. Yes, you and I are dearly loved by our God. We're chosen, holy and dearly loved. Now, what an incentive that those things are for us to be about these, uh, be about the action here of, of putting these things on. Um, we're not surprised at the qualities of the, that these new garments represent. These these beautiful, um, this beautiful fresh garment we put on, and as we get rid of the old tattered, dirty garment. Um, we've got something very desirable on. Let's just read verses 12. I must therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, we're not surprised by those qualities that are listed there. Uh, they're taught over and over again throughout the, the Bible. Jesus is our prime example in all this, but he's more than our example. He's our saviour. He's, he's lived it all and done it all uh, for us. Now, maybe these attributes that we read here, to one degree or another, feel foreign to us. That's not me, you might think. And... They're not in our nature. And in our fallen human nature, that would be true. They, they, don't, they aren't us. They don't describe us as we naturally are. But, we are. but they are what God is growing in us. He's doing it. We need to practice these things individually and collectively. And as we do this, we need to remember what Paul wrote in the previous uh, letter at uh, to the Philippians, he wrote this at chapter 2 and verse 13 of Philippians. He says, It is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So um, it's not just our work. We do need to be engaged in these things, but it's God in all this who is, who is working. And he's working not only in our actions, but in our will. Isn't that amazing too? We've got God on our side. Now, all these qualities that I, we've heard Paul write of here, they're described elsewhere by Paul as the fruit of the Spirit in that letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, those famous verses 22 and 23. They're the fruit of the Spirit of God which dwells in us, and all of them are encompassed by one thing, that is love. Every one of those individual things is an aspect of love. In the Galatians list, love is mentioned first, the first of nine fruits of the Spirit. Now here, using the imagery of garments, Paul likens love to an, to an enveloping coat or cloak that covers everything else. It includes all those things that he'd already mentioned. It covers everything. Either way, love is the very core of our life in Christ. It's the Christian ethic. 
But Paul hasn't finished. He has more for us which we need to consider. He calls us to peace and thankfulness. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Now the peace of Christ means to rule. It actually needs it rules in our hearts. It's like arbitration. It's uh, between, between um, things that we've got, alternatives that we've got before us. Now I do want to send a note of caution here, because I've uh, sometimes heard people say, uh, in considering a course of action, whether they should do this or not do something other that. Well, something gives me peace. That'll give me, considering this alternative, that will give me peace. So it must be right because the peace, God says, you know, the peace of God should rule in your hearts. Now, um, we need to be cautious about that because the right course of action may not result in outward peace at all. It might even be the very opposite. It might be tension, might be um, hostility, and that the outward peace could be the result of a wrong course of action. And secondly, even considering inner peace, yes, we should have inner peace about things, but that's in a person whose conscience has been properly informed by God and taught by God. In such a person, um, peace will be the outcome of the right thing that they choose to do, whether the outward uh, situation is peaceful or not. And our consciences need to be aligned with God's word. So sadly, a false peace may be the result of a person actually quenching the spirit in them. So with those cautionary things in mind, nonetheless, we take up what Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now related to that, to ensuring that our consciences are truly aligned with God's word so that we'll recognise inner peace for the real deal that it is, we hear Paul's instructions in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. That's going to teach our conscience, isn't it? Get our conscience right. But let it dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. He's referring here to our worship of God, and in particular, our communal worship, like in these services. Now, see how there are two aspects to this, um, the, the music and the singing. There are actually two aspects. The first he mentions is that we are, in these things, teaching and admonishing one another. So as you sing, you're singing to me, teaching me the things that we're singing and I'm doing likewise to you. If we're singing, I'm actually teaching and admonishing others. So we do it to each other. It's all mutual. So part of it, one aspect of it is how it affects us one to another here. But then it also is that we sing to God. We give our, our praise and our worship is directed to him. And those two aspects are always there in our worship time our, of uh, music and song. Um, directed at each other and directed to God. And these things are so important that, in fact, they're vital. We'll be continually renewed, it says there. What did it say earlier? Uh, we've put on the new self. It's being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And as we grow together, in verse 15 it says, as members of one body. Okay, that all hangs together. 
Paul closes this section in verse 17 with these words. He says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. His words here catch up everything, don't they? All that we've considered in those previous verses and anything else relevant that hasn't already been specifically mentioned. Whatever you do, he says. Now, doing or saying anything in the name of the Lord Jesus, it's no trite formula. People can wrongly do it that way, even in our prayers, but it actually means to consciously consider everything that we say and do as representing Jesus, as seeking to be aligned fully with him, in doing it in his view, and with seeking his honour and glory. Well, that's no little thing, is it? That to bring everything in subjection uh, to God in that way. What a high and noble calling we have, brothers and sisters. Can we do it? Can we do it? Well, by God's grace and with his help and his forgiveness, I believe that we can. He said back earlier, he said... You died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We have glory ahead of us, and God will get us there. What a high and noble calling we have. But we can take heart in these things. God is for us. He loves us. He cares for us as his people. And he will get us there. Let's just pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we are amazed at what you've called us into. What a high regard you have for us, your creatures. But Lord, we know that we've fallen far short and we feel weak when we consider these things. We need your mercy, and we need your forgiveness for our failures, and we need your strengthening by your word and by your spirit. We need our dear Saviour and Lord. For Christ's sake and for your glory, we ask for your ongoing help. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now after our, our next song, we've got one song to follow this, The Life uh, I Live, uh, we're going to have communion and Paul's going to lead us in that. Thank you, Paul.